You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And uh, I'm delighted to see so many people here. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you all. Um, I think of uh, W.B. Yeats towards the very end of his life in his letters constantly complaining about uh, colds and bronchial conditions and chest infections and headaches uh, and, uh, and so on. And I feel in many regards we're all doing justice to him in that phase today because uh, not only have many of you come with your germs and infections, but Marjorie and I have just had a very long exchange of ailments and illnesses uh, for which uh, I apologise, but uh, we are where we are. Um, it's such a pleasure to welcome Marjorie House to the Trinity Longman Hub uh, to share part of the festivities that we're enjoying this week um, with Boston College visiting us uh, in Trinity. Marjorie, as I think many of you here will know, uh, joins us from uh, the Department of English at Boston College and from their stellar Irish Studies contingent. She is, of course, one of the world's leading scholars in both Yeats and Joyce, and you'll all know uh, her many wonderfully titled books, including the co-edited Semi-Colonial Joyce from 2000, and on Yeats, those numerous essential works, including the Cambridge Companion to Yeats from 2006, uh, and uh, her co-ed with Joseph Valente at Yeats and Afterwards from 2014. More recently, um, she has led with Claire Conley um, the editing, uh, editing-in-chief of the Cambridge Irish Literature in Transition series. She was an absolutely brilliant um, uh, editor-in-chief for, for that venture. And of course, uh, as a lone mission, she was the editor of Volume 4, which covered the period from 1880 to 1940 and that absolutely essential phase in the evolution of Irish culture, history, and literature, and a period where all the big hitters feature Yeats, Joyce, Lady Gregory, and so on. Um, her keynotes in, in all her work, for me, are her attentiveness, a very subtle attentiveness to colonial formations and malformations in Irish literary history, and to gender, and to modernism in all its varieties. And in her uh, introduction to her uh, volume from Irish Literature in Transition, she talks of the era between 1880 and 1940 as being a period in which literature, I quote, did not simply respond to political changes. Literature and cultural institutions became actors in the public sphere in a way that was at least in part new. And that idea of how literature and culture become active and shape the public sphere, not just in Ireland, but of course in this period in Europe and across the world, is I think something that she speaks to absolutely brilliantly in all her work. Uh, a figure who was very central to that period of transition was, of course, W.B. Yeats, and uh, at the moment we are reflecting on his award of the Nobel Prize for Literature, awarded to him almost exactly a century ago. Um, so I think it's a very timely uh, intervention that we have Marjorie House with us here to speak on Yeats, the Nobel, and the labour of writing. Marjorie, you're very welcome. Thanks, 
for that introduction. Um, I'm thrilled to be here, and I know that uh, all my colleagues at BC and I are really thrilled about beginning this sort of new, higher level of exchange with um, the Long Room Hub. So thank you for inviting me, and thanks for coming. Um, what I'm going to do today uh, had its origins in a specific assignment um, having to do with the 100-year anniversary of Yates winning the Nobel Prize, which I got asked to go talk about in Stockholm. So it had to be Nobel-themed, Nobel-oriented uh, in some way. So um, I started with what was actually kind of a stupid question about a stupid action, uh, which was, why did Yates, after receiving his medal from the King of Sweden, walk backwards up a small flight of stairs? <laughs> he described himself doing this in The Bounty of Sweden, uh, which was an essay he ostensibly wrote uh, to kind of record his impressions of Stockholm. And it was published along with his better known Nobel lecture, The Irish Dramatic Movement by the Kula Press in 1924. And this is what he says about that little moment. When the king has given me my diploma and medal and said, I thank you for coming yourself, and I have bowed my thanks, I glance for a moment at the face of the princess Margareta, then move backwards towards the stair. As I am about to step sideways like the others, I notice that the carpet is not nailed down, and this suddenly concentrates my attention upon the parallel lines made by the two edges of the carpet. And as though I were hypnotized, I feel that I must move between them. And so, straight up backward without any sidelong movement. It seems to me that I am a long time reaching the top. And as the cheering grows much louder when I get there, I must have roused the sympathy of the audience. Now, whether or not the audience was really cheering this bit of athletic prowess, the backward walking up the stairs was important enough to Yates that it also featured in the verbal account of the ceremony that he gave to his sister Lily, on whom he visited on his way home from Stockholm. So she writes to somebody else, he had to walk backwards up five steps coming from the king. And it kind of entered the Yates family lore, uh, too. Um, now, if, if you go on the Nobel website, uh, you can find all kinds of videos of early, uh, earlier Nobel um, ceremonies. And I was desperate to find a video of Yates walking backwards up the stairs, but apparently it does not exist. Nobody else does that either of the years that I looked at. Um, I assume it really happened, um, and in any case, that matters less to me than the way he narrates it in that passage I read, and how I began to think about um, how it fits into the rest of the essay and into his works and thinking overall. Yates was very taken with the Swedish court and the royal family, so of course, one obvious reason why he walked backwards was that he didn't want to turn his back on the king. 
he describes other recipients as kind of sidling up the steps, half-turned, uh, to continue facing the king, at least partly. And there's a lot to say about the elitism, praise for social hierarchy, and potential authoritarianism uh, that characterizes his idealizing portrait of the Swedish monarchy in this essay. He called the bounty of Sweden a kind of diary to capture his immediate impressions of Stockholm that were, as he said, strange, mobile, and disconnected. <coughs> and this would seem to position the essay as a private counterpart to the more statesmanlike public lecture uh, that he also gave. And that's arguable. Um, certainly, the bounty of Sweden on the face of it seems personal, quirky, random, fragmented uh, in a lot of ways. But when I started um, kind of digging into it, I began to think that something else was going on, too. And so a lot of what I'm going to say today springs from me trying to figure out what that was. Um, this turned into a really kind of deep dive into the bounty of Sweden, which I had never really thought much about uh, before. And the more I thought about it, the weirder it seemed. And who doesn't love that? So yeah. Um, I will talk about uh, the poems. on The, the handout has um, some poems on it, and I'll talk about them, but that comes quite a bit. I'll talk a little bit about them. That comes later uh, in the talk. To go back up to Yates's trip up the stairs, one way to read the scene would be as an example of manly self-possession, pride and service and humility before greatness. Um, we can recall, for example, Joe Valente's The Myth of Manliness, uh, tracing that kind of manly pose through Irish national culture. Uh, he argues in the case of Yeats that Yeats embraced this formulation when, in the wake of the Playboy riots, uh, he gave up trying to imagine himself as the bard of the rising people nation and began to champion the Anglo-Irish elite and the model of Castiglione's courtier. And the bounty of Sweden does, in fact, invoke Castiglione's description of the court of Urbino with its what it calls its discipline of joy. However, there were a couple of things about this anecdote that made me kind of reject that interpretation and go in a different direction. Um, first, there's actually something faintly ridiculous about it. And I have said before, elsewhere, that I think Yeats frequently subjects his own manly poses of mastery or discipline, poses he did like to strike, um, to scrutiny and to mockery. Harold Bloom once called him a subtle self-satirist. I think that's right. He was still quite capable of remaining attached to those poses, but a corner of him was always watching skeptically. So in Cool Park, 1929, he calls himself one that ruffled in a manly pose for all his timid heart. There was another Nobel recipient at the 1923 ceremony who Yates got into conversation with, uh, who um, was much more of a Democrat and who resented uh, the ceremony and all its hierarchies. And then when he was talking to Yates, uh, 
he accused the royal family of viewing their guests as kind of low and therefore ridiculous. And Nate's reply, we are ridiculous. We are the learned at whom the little boys laugh in the streets. Second, what also struck me about the backward stair walking uh, were the elements of compulsion, chance, and the extended effort involved. Backing up the stairs was scarcely voluntary, provoked by the random detail of how the carpet looked, and also hard physical work. So I began to think about this incident as an invitation to explore some questions about Yeats's lifelong hard work, the work of writing. <coughs> what kind of work did he think writing was? Why did he think writers write? What does success look like? How might writers expect or not expect to be rewarded? Over and over again throughout his career, Yeats insisted that writing was difficult, exhausting labor that took a toll not just on his mind, but on his body. So in 1908, he complained, creative work always ruins one's nerves for a time. And his autobiography recalled that composition strained my nerves and spoiled my sleep. Whatever I do, he wrote in 1926, poetry will remain torture. In the Bounty of Sweden, he also emphasizes the laborious nature of writing, not just writing in general, specifically the writing of poetry. He describes his process this way, and this is a fairly long quote for which I apologize. Um, I have a couple of them, um, and I didn't want to burden you with too many pages of handout, so I didn't put these on the handout. Uh, this is him describing his process, his writing process. Every now and then, when something has stirred my imagination, I begin talking to myself. I speak in my own person and dramatize myself, very much as I have seen a mad old woman do upon the Dublin Keys. Occasionally, I write out what I have said in verse. He goes on to say that when he tries to put these initial soliloquies, which is what he calls them, into verse, he says, I have no object but to find for them some natural speech, rhythm, and syntax, and to set it out in a pattern. And though the labor is very great, I seem to have used no faculty peculiar to myself, certainly no special gift. I print the poem and never hear about it again. Until I find the book years after with a page dog-eared by some young man or marked by some young girl with a violet. And when I had seen that, I'm a little ashamed, as though somebody were to attribute to me a delicacy of feeling I should but do not possess. What came so easily at first and amid so much drama and was written so laboriously at the last cannot be counted among my possessions. So this is an extraordinary kind of complex and interesting passage. So the initial steps are easy, the initial steps of writing, and associated with drama. What's hard is putting the content into the right poetic form, creating a pattern. Such privileging of poetic form 
is the central insight and argument of, for example, Helen Bendler's masterful treatment of Yeats's careful use of stanza forms, rhythm, and meter in um, our secret discipline. As she observes, back to kind of physical toll it takes, Yeats's belief in form was so intense that he was willing to endure anxiety, headaches, indigestion, and insomnia to achieve it. But as I thought about it, there's something very odd about this in the Bounty of Sweden. The extreme labor, and therefore presumably the value of poetry, is asserted. But Yeats appears to refuse, kind of elaborately, <coughs> to claim individual credit for it. It's not particular to him. It's not a special gift. It doesn't belong to him. And the indication of an audience response is delayed for years. That response, um, incidentally, is depicted in a scene that can only be imaginary, not remembered. I guarantee you Yeats was not going around breaking into the homes of random young people to see what they had done in his books or if they'd left any flowers in there. So he's making this up. He imagines himself finding not actual readers, but the somewhat ambiguous physical evidence they leave behind. Evidence suggesting that they were moved in some way, we're not sure how, by a poem, the dog-eared page, and the violet. This trace evidence, belated and indirect as it is, is nevertheless what determines his public success as a poet. Later in the essay, he returns to what he calls those dog-eared pages, those pressed violets, as things upon which the fame of a lyric poet depends at the last. So they're like the most important uh, thing. The passage manages to suggest simultaneously that his poems have a powerful, lasting effect on readers, that Yeats only learns about this effect um, later and through, through kind of indirect and coded uh, fashion, and that Yeats himself is not even really responsible for it. It suggests that whatever the delicacy of feeling, wherever the delicacy of feeling conveyed or invoked by the poem comes from, doesn't come from Yeats. He should have it, but he doesn't. And why would Yeats imagine a scene in which his poetic labor is validated, but in a way that makes him feel not proud, but slightly ashamed? The specific labor of writing poetry seems to involve a commitment to labor in the absence of any guarantee of creation or success or fame. And it seems to involve attributing responsibility for whatever, for whatever success does come to forces other than the creative will of the individual poet. Wait, there's more in the Bounty of Sweden. Uh, he continues. On the other hand, if I give a successful lecture or write a vigorous critical essay, I am confident that on some one point which seems to me of great importance, I know more than other men, and I covet honor. So some kinds of work, drama, lecturing, critical essays, seem to spur or empower him to feel confident 
to feel he deserves credit, he deserves honor and success in a pretty straightforward way. The exception is poetry, which is the thing that's also, according to Yeats, uniquely and even physically, maybe especially physically, demanding and difficult. Before the Nobel decision, Yeats had been told by a reporter uh, that the prize was going to be conferred either on him or on Thomas Mann. Actually, that turns out not to be true, but it's what he thought at the time. And recounting his response in The Bounty of Sweden, uh, he makes a related gesture, both asserting and undercutting a privileged place for poetry. This is what he says. Hermann has many readers, is a famous novelist with his fixed place in the world, and said I to myself, well fitted for such an honor. Whereas I am but a writer of plays, which are acted by players with a literary mind for a few evenings, and I have altered them so many times that I doubt the value of every passage. I am more confident of my lyrics or of some few amongst them, but then I have got into the habit of recommending or commending myself to general company for anything rather than my gift of lyric writing, which concerns such a meager troupe. So here the gesture is one of confidence in poetry, sort of qualified in successive steps. Okay, he does have a gift. First he's confident in all his poems, then it's just a few, then the number is meager, then he, what, what's left of his confidence he keeps subjecting, he confesses to repeated habitual deflection. So it seems like there's kind of not a lot left by the time he's, he's done talking about his confidence in his poetry. So in the formal Nobel lecture, uh, the Swedish Academy had been expecting him to read his poems and talk about himself. Uh, but instead, he ditched poetry altogether and talked about the Irish dramatic movement. He began, oddly, by speculating that he would never have been nominated, quote, if I had written no plays, no dramatic criticism, if my lyric poetry had not a quality of speech practiced upon the stage. I think, by the way, this would have been news to the Nobel people. It was pretty clear to them what they were awarding him the prize for, and it was not his place. But anyway. Um, now, there were a number of reasons why he made this switch to talking about the dramatic movement. Some of them, good. Uh, one was that he wanted to highlight the recent political struggles in Ireland and to tie his prize to the emergence of the Irish Free State. Uh, so when people sent him telegrams uh, congratulating him, he liked to reply, I consider that this honor has come to me less as an individual than as a representation, representative of Irish literature. It is part of Europe's welcome to the free state. Another reason was that it allowed him to generously praise the contributions of other people in Ireland, who he had worked with, uh, to call attention to the labors, triumphs, and troubles of my fellow workers. A third 
maybe slightly less generous reason, uh, was that it allowed him, as Roy Foster suggests, to create that famous formulation, which was once quite canonical, but of course now is, is highly contested, tracing the origins of Irish independence uh, to a cultural nationalism that arose after the fall of Parnell. Uh, it's a famous quote, um, but I'll, I'll give part of it um, here. The modern literature of Ireland, and indeed all that stir of thought which prepared for the Anglo-Irish War, began when Parnell fell from power in 1891. A disillusioned and embittered Ireland turned from parliamentary politics, an event was conceived, and the race began, as I think, to be troubled by that event's long gestation. Dr. Hyde founded the Gaelic League. Meanwhile, I had begun a movement in English. Not much disavowal or deflection there. More like a straightforward coveting of honor, taking some credit. Yes, he's sharing credit. Uh, but meanwhile, I had begun a movement in English. There's not a lot of wiggle room for qualifying your confidence um, there. Though it's very different um, from the kind of thing he does around poetry uh, in the Bounty of Sweden. I think there was a further reason why Yeats focused on the dramatic movement in his official lecture. Something about the way he thought about the labor of writing poetry made it incompatible with accepting and celebrating the honor and the financial reward, reward that came with the Nobel. Now, don't get me wrong, he wanted both those things very, very much. Um, after all, he did dig out his American chinchilla coat, had it relined, I guess it was a little mothbally, and uh, traveled all the way to Sweden, where sadly he didn't get to wear it because the weather was too warm. But he had it with him, just in case. Uh, and, of course, he definitely needed the money. Uh, but the part of Yeats that relished honor and worldly success, I think, was haunted by this other part um, that kept whispering um, that a good lyric poet, in particular, uh, should write out of struggle and failure. Uh, with, rather than strength and success, and shouldn't be sure about any of the rewards uh, that he was going to get. And as much as he complained bitterly for basically his whole life about how hard writing poetry was and what a toll it exacted on him, he also insisted that such labor was the central element to producing great art. The chief temptation of the artist, he wrote, is creation without toil. Poetry demanded a particular kind of toil, physically and mentally demanding, marked by difficulty and contingency rather than will or mastery. The struggle is, above all, a struggle to contain his ideas within a specific poetic form and pattern, kind of like forcing himself to move in between the parallel lines he sees in a carpet and it springs from some mysterious inner compulsion or some external force he doesn't control, like hypnotism, rather than a wish to impress an audience or be rewarded. But his efforts nevertheless become dependent on those things, on some level, for validation. 
It's kind of like being hypnotized and sleepwalking backwards up a staircase, while also somehow hoping or imagining that the crowd is going to notice what you're doing. So I think this analogy between Yeats on the staircase and the work of writing poetry also helps to explain uh, some more things about this weird essay, The Valley of Sweden. Um, so for example, uh, he dwells not just on his own exertion, walking up the stairs, he gets a little bit obsessed with how other Nobel recipients got back up those stairs. Uh, he also somehow was imagining this, the backward trip not as something one might just do once, like how many occasions would there be when you're supposed to go backwards up a staircase. But he, he kind of started to imagine it as something that you might need to practice over and over again. So he described uh, an ambassador who was receiving the medal for somebody who couldn't be there uh, this way. He ascends those five or six steps walking backward. He does not go completely backwards, but sideways, and seems to show great practice. Like he thinks this guy's practicing at home before he comes to the ceremony. Uh, and then at another moment, two scientists uh, who shared the prize accepted their medals together, a different kind of problem. So there, he, he observes, as it would be impossible for two men to go up backwards, side by side, without much practice, one repeats the slanting movement, and the other turns his back on royalty. This is obviously all he thought about during the ceremony. Uh, when he examined his medal, uh, he says, it shows a young man listening to a muse who stands young and beautiful with a great lyre in her hand. And I think, as I examine it, I was good looking once, like that young man. But my unpracticed verse was full of infirmity, my muse old, as it were. And now I am old and rheumatic and nothing to look at, but my muse is young. So the vigor of his body is incompatible with successful poetic creation. Poetry only comes with the repeated toil of practice, it, ex it exacts a toll on the body. It, it requires this kind of almost unnatural exertion that's like going up those damn stairs that he couldn't get out of his mind. The insistence on the layer of the mind and the body, um, actually, that's complicated by Yeats's increasing conviction after about 1907 that poetry will flourish best if the poet has sufficient leisure to produce as, say, upon a house shaken by the land agitation has it, a written speech wrought of high laughter, loveliness, and ease. And we find Yeats worrying in pages from a diary written in 1909. Am I going against nature in my constant attempt to fill my life with work? Is my mind as rich as in idle days? Is not perhaps the poet's labor a mere rejection? If he seek purity, the ridding of his life of all but poetry, will not inspiration come? Can one reach God by toil? So he starts to, there's a side dates that actually he's committed to this kind of labor, this hard labor of the mind and the body. And then he starts to think, oh my God, what if it doesn't, what if it's not enough? What if it's not going to get me anywhere? Um, 
So he needs to avoid certain kinds of work, like working for money, uh, to be at leisure to pursue the other work of poetry. But then he still wonders about another model for producing poetry. Maybe it's idleness that you need for inspiration. And he worries that there are some things, probably the most important things, poetry, God, that can't be achieved by sheer toil after all. So the labor of this toil, this labor that he's imagining, can become unclear. And I think this lack of certainty is, in fact, an important part of this conception of what kind of work writing poetry is. You're working hard to create or adopt a certain form, but you can't predict the, out the outcome. You can't see where you're going. You're walking backwards. You can't predict the reception of your work, because you're walking backwards. In the final pages of a vision, uh, Yeats recounts his hopes for a moment of complete knowledge. Uh, then, and this is a kind of well-known passage. But then uh, he recounts that he's, he's disappointed. He says, but nothing comes. Though this moment was to reward me for all my toil, failure is always an option. But he's not necessarily defeated by it. It becomes its own kind of achievement or success. And he says, then I understand. I have already said all that can be said. So like some of those moments in the Bounty of Sweden, this formulation both expresses and undercuts a confidence in his achievements. Uh, and it does so less by directly saying, oh, I figured something out, and more by kind of acting out a process um, through which he comes to realize both an accomplishment but also a limit. Uh, this model of the labor of writing poetry appears across uh, his poetry. Um, often in ways that were highly gendered. The early works, such as The Rose and Wind Among the Reeds, feature a trio of figures who are variously defined through their relation to labor. The poet, the beautiful woman, and the old woman. The beautiful woman is obviously, uh, particularly in the early days, um, you know, kind of multifaceted symbol representing anyone or more of the following, the beloved, eternal beauty, poetry itself. In all these guises, she is marked by her lack of labor. Perfect in herself, she has no need and no capacity to work, struggle, or change. In this, she's the opposite of the poet, who is defined by the perpetual and perpetually difficult work of producing poetry. Even the Valley of Sweden actually hints at a, ver at a version. It wasn't just me that heard that, right? OK. I think it's just the system. Uh, even the Valley of Sweden hints at a version of this figure, um, the beautiful woman who's kind of across from the poet. Before making his backwards ascent, Yeats glances at the Princess Margareta before he goes up the stairs. Uh, and he describes her this way, elsewhere, elsewhere in the essay, this way. Uh, he says, she's full of subtle beauty, emotional and precise, and impassive with a still intensity, suggesting that final consummate strength which rounds the spiral of a shell. One finds a similar beauty in wooden busts, taken from Egyptian tombs, of the 18th dynasty, 
and not again until Gainsborough paints. Is it very ancient and very modern alone? Or did painters and sculptors cease to notice it until our day? So Princess Margaret is not a person. She's a work of art. Right? He describes her in exactly the way he might talk about a poem or another art object. Um, to turn to, I promised you what happened, to turn to an example on the handout, the first one, uh, and he gives his beloved certain rhymes. Uh, the woman achieves her perfect form and assures its immediate effect on her audience in contrast to the poor Yates from the Valley of Sweden who has to go looking for the book with the dog-eared page and the violet stubbing pages. Um, by binding up her hair and sighing. Boom, that's it, that's all it takes. Meanwhile, the poet lover works day out, day in, trying to build his poems out of the battles of old times. And I'm not gonna do super extended readings of any of the poems, um, but just a, the, whole, the whole poem is there. Masculine poetic labor in Yeats is regularly imagined as producing objects that are wrought, built, or made. In this case, the result is poor, and the poet is constantly struggling and practicing. And I think the repeated effort is important uh, there. It goes back to this, this word practice that he kept using. On the other hand, this vocabulary also suggested both artistic craft and solid substance. And I think it was partly influenced by his admiration for William Morris and the arts and crafts movement. The idea of the movement, of course, was to apply art to industry to persuade people that objects for everyday use, like architecture, furniture, or clothing, should be beautiful and well-made, rather than mass-produced, and to see the artist and the artisan as alive. Yeats had long dreams of fostering what he called the applied arts of literature, that would unite artist and poet, craftsman and day laborer, so they would all accept a common design. And used a big chunk of his Nobel winnings to shore up the shaky finances of his sister's arts and crafts style, Cool Press. In the Valley of Sweden, uh, he praised the Stockholm Town Hall uh, extensively. And I had to leave slightly early, so I missed the tour of the Stockholm Town, Stockholm Town Hall when I was there, so I was really disappointed. Um, I saw some pictures, though, anyway. Uh, it's very impressive. Um, and Yates treats it, as Roy Foster observed, as a sort of Morrisite masterwork. To him, it's a, it's a big arts and crafts building. Um, it united artists and craftsmen under a single vision while allowing each worker kind of complete creative freedom. The very building materials, the, the bricks themselves, according to Yates, looked artisanal in a way that he said took away all sense of mechanical finish. Uh, and Yates had always thought of Morris as a kind of manly man uh, at heart, sort of a man of action rather than a poet, and that was a, a kind of opposition, a distinction that meant a lot to Yeats. Uh, I think Morris offered him a way of imagining the work of poetry um, and the objects produced by it as finely crafted, but also reassuringly sturdy and somewhat masculine. And I want to suggest a connection between this model and the straightforward and also slightly masculine moment in the Valley of Sweden when a successful lecture or a vigorous critical essay 
makes him confident that he knows more than other men. These are sort of more comforting, more straightforward models of writing, uh, and they're allied with um, uh, manliness. Just as often, however, uh, in fact, maybe more, Yeats imagined the labor of poetry as women's work through images of weaving, stitching, lace making, things like that. As Peter Botham has argued, uh, as an anxiously masculine late Victorian man of letters, Yeats encoded his sensitivity to the questionable manliness of his work um, in images of the constant and often impoverished domestic work, particularly sewing and knitting, that define his most persistent memories of his mother, on the one hand, who's actually very, uh, quite a sad figure and emerges as a very sad figure in things like his memoirs and uh, his autobiography. Uh, but also in the widespread Victorian stereotype of the starving seamstress, where part of the point of that is kind of cultural discourse is that this kind of labor is unnatural for women who should be, you know, um, not working for money. Therefore, it's kind of, you know, of course they become starving and impoverished. Uh, he wrote of himself and the young men of letters he had encountered over the years that they all understood that we achieve if we do achieve in little sedentary stitches as though we were making lace. And he thinks, he said uh, in another uh, place, that man is a woman to his work and it forgets his thoughts. So this is a different model of work, and especially the work of writing, that's allied with femininity. Such figures can suggest both artfulness and vulnerability when describing for example, songs I wove for my beloved, or in something like he wishes for the claws of heaven. Uh, but in the song of the old mother, which is the second poem um, I put on the handout, women's domestic labor has become sheer lifeless drudgery. And repeated effort involved in doing that work or in practicing one's craft, whether poetry or walking backward, has become constant bodily labor from dawn to dusk. The circular structure of the poem reinforces this. It begins and ends with the image of the fire. So poetry as women's work can embody the threat of endless toil without creation. Maybe toil is not enough. Maybe it's just toil. And maybe it's diminishing um, in all the ways that that might suggest. And this potential identification of the poet with the impoverished old woman this, too, finds its echo in the Valley of Sweden, when Yeats describes himself imitating a mad old woman upon the Dublin Keys as he dramatizes something that has stirred his imagination. Yeats's most famous meditation on the work of writing poetry is, of course, Adam's Curse. The poet, the beautiful woman, and various kinds of work all reappear, uh, with the difference that now the beautiful woman only appears to be unlaboring. In reality, according to a famous line, she was labored to be beautiful. This acknowledgment of female labor, which aligns the woman more closely with the poet, also somewhat confusingly coincided with Yeats's determination that his earlier style was somewhat unmanly, and that's his word. And, um, the idea that he needed to move away from it. 
Now, part of the labor of writing for the poet is done to conceal labor, to make all the poet's stitching and unstitching seem but a moment's thought. And Adam's Curse is the last poem on the handout. The purposeful, perpetual work of writing poetry, of finding the right form, is necessary, but evidence of it must be suppressed in the finished product. So this makes both poet and woman potential versions of Castiglione's discipline of joy, but I don't think so. I think they're actually only potential versions and can only ever be potential because actually Yeats continues to insist on, as we say in class, showing his work, on displaying the labor of writing poetry as that which in the end cannot and should not be entirely hidden. So Adam's curse is also a critique or even a rejection, I think of the kind of Castiglione ideal. The speaker strikes an authoritative pose, repeating, I said, which is always a bad sign in the Yates poem. And he claims he's pronouncing on something that's certain, also always a bad sign in the Yates poem. Far from the stance that the bounty of Sweden offered the toiling poet who doesn't know how he's going to be received, and so on. Worse. He associates the ideal with learned looks and old books, the kind of authority that is nearly always wrong in Yeats's poetry, and that Yeats in Sweden said looked ridiculous to little boys laughing in the streets. Um, my friend Joe Lente has made the interesting suggestion that in the poem, the group grows quiet at the name of love because love is something you cannot achieve through labor. So maybe love belongs with those things, like poetry or God, that Yeats worried may not be achievable through sheer toil. Now, we all know that as the awful, awful saying goes, good relationships take work. Uh, however, can one actually fall in love just by working hard at it? Yeats is one of the few writers who I am pretty sure thought about this question very seriously for biographical reasons. Having gone down the rabbit hole with the Bounty of Sweden as far as I did, I cannot help reading the speaker of Adam's Curse as committing himself, for reasons he's not sure about, to a kind of toil that offers no certainty it will succeed or be validated, He's striking a pose that he's attached to, but also has come to suspect is wrong, silly, or idle. He becomes an earlier version of Yeats walking backwards up a flight of stairs, half coveting honor, half disavowing that wish as destructive of his creative capacity. And this predicament is not something the Bounty of Sweden can articulate in a straightforward way and claim credit for like having figured it out and packaging it for the reader. It's something that he must embody or act out, as in his famous formulation, man can embody the truth, but he cannot know it. So all that undercutting of his confidence and achievements in the essay wasn't false humility. I think it was a way of encoding and demonstrating this model of the labor of writing. And the fact that the poem um, enacts such vision 
and such a practice, this particular poem is thoroughly accomplished and widely admired, and I think it kind of shows his instinct was right. The labor of writing poetry must remain for Yeats, whether he wins that Nobel Prize or not, a faintly ridiculous, only partially conscious, full body struggle taking place in plain view, which may or may not <clears throat> rouse the sympathy of an audience. Thank you. Thank you.